people are drawn into inner rooms. We like to sort of pull the veil back on things that happen, say, in secret, especially in powerful places, to have an opportunity to sort of peer into the inner workings of a system or a structure of power. One of my favorite TV shows is The West Wing from early in the 2000s, which gives you this sort of, it feels very real. I've never lived in the White House, so I don't know, but it feels very authentic. You're getting a glimpse of how things work uh, in, you know, behind the scenes in the office of the president and the chief staff of the White House. And, and we like the idea of sort of being able to get this inside view on what's going on in an important powerful place where things are generally kind of secretive, right? Things are generally shut up pretty tight. In Revelation 5, we become observers of the most important inner room that could ever be, more powerful than any oval office or any other political uh, head of state. We are shown the very throne room of heaven. What is going on in heaven as we glance into the throne room of God? Now, of course, the, the vision of John here began, um, this part of the vision of John began in chapter 4, where we entered the, the, the open door that he saw in heaven, uh, and what he saw there at the center of it all was a throne. A throne stood in heaven, and so the, the orientation of, of heaven was around the throne of God, particularly God the Father, although as we saw briefly, and we'll see more today, the Son and Spirit were also in view, but the Father was seated on the throne, and angels and elders and everything were oriented around the throne of God. And the scene continues to unfold in chapter 5, and today... Uh, this is what we'll consider as the, the, the inner room, the behind-the-scenes look at heaven uh, is unveiled to us. Let me read for you all of chapter 5. So if you'll turn in Revelation 5, I'll read for you verses 1 through 14, and we'll walk through these verses together. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. <clears throat> and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, 
And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless this word to us. So as the scene unfolds, this throne room vision, in chapter 5, the heavenly scene shows us three all-important realities. Three all-important realities. The first one is this. Christ's coronation as king. Christ's coronation as king. Coronation would be the public ceremony where a king was crowned. The official sort of taking of office of a new king is his coronation. And I believe that is what is happening in this scene in Revelation 5. It begins with a scroll. John sees in verse 1, in the right hand, which is the, the hand of power of a king, always the, the right hand of the ruler was said to be, the, the thought to be where he gained his strength and his rule over, over his kingdom. So in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, this being God the Father, he saw a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the scroll, we don't have, our books are like this now, where we have a spine and pages glued. They didn't used to have that. Their book would have been a scroll, long paper that had been sort of glued together and then would, they would roll it up. So obviously the longer the scroll, the more writing that there is. And it's very unusual that there would be a scroll with writing both inside and on the back. The texture of the papyrus or even the leather that they would use for these scrolls made it difficult to inscribe on the back. So typically, there's only writing on the inside. It would be rolled up and the back would be blank. This is a scroll that has writing within and on the back, perhaps speaking of the sort of comprehensiveness of what is written there. In chapter 6, we'll see the scroll opened one bit at a time. One seal will be broken and the next will be broken. And as the scroll is opened, that which unfolds is sort of a panoramic of world history. It's from the ascension of Christ in the first century all the way to his second coming at the end of time. I think what we'll see in the opening of the scroll, seal by seal, is not all in the future. It's, a, it's things that will characterize the age between the two comings of Christ. And indeed, it will end and culminate in the coming of Christ, as we'll see when we get there. So if the scroll is the sort of the contents of human history between the two 
comings of, uh, of Jesus Christ, then it essentially contains the decrees of the king. It contains the edicts of God as king for the universe, the unfolding of human history, complete with its woes and disasters, and with the flowering of God's redeeming grace and salvation. All of it is there, and we'll see it as it unfolds. The problem is, there's no one found who's worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals and reveal the contents. And the revealing of the contents is the same as the enactment of those plans and purposes in the world. And so there's an angel who proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? And because it says that there was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, clearly this is a universal search. And the angel is speaking with a loud enough voice for everyone to hear. Is anyone worthy to open the scroll and to unfold the plans and purposes of the, of the God of creation? And there was no one found. There was none in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And so we have a problem. We have God's purposes for the world, God's redeeming purposes for his people, but they cannot be realized if there is not one worthy to open the scroll and enact these purposes and these plans. The failed search for one worthy to open the scroll is for dramatic effect. He could have immediately said, and then the lamb walked up and opened the scroll. But there's, in the vision, there's this moment of uncertainty. The vision that God gives to John includes a moment of waiting, a moment of tension. God has these plans and purposes for the world and for his people, but they can't be realized if no one can come forward to open them. And we are intended to pause and, and, and consider the implications. What if God's purposes can't be carried out? What if all that is in God's mind and God's heart for his people, simply he's not able to deliver? What is to become of the church on earth? William Hendrickson says, if the scroll is not opened, it means that there will be no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter trial. No judgments upon a persecuting world. No ultimate triumph for believers. No new heaven and earth. No future inheritance. Indeed, if the scrolls cannot be opened, God's purposes for his people cannot come to pass. Which helps us understand why John reacts with despair. You see, in verse 4, it says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. He is despairing at the apparent failure of God's purposes coming to pass. And into that context, into the midst of John's despair, when hope seemed lost, one emerges onto the scene. And you see in verse 5, that same, uh, an elder says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise God, he has provided a worthy one 
and the identity of this worthy one doesn't take us a lot of sort of computing to figure out who it is. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is re referring all the way back to a prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 as Jacob was blessing his sons before he died. Jacob's blessing upon his son Judah calls him a lion's cub and a lion. And it said in Genesis 49, 9 and 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Clearly a reference to one from, the, from Judah's family, from Judah's tribe, who would reign and even associated with the lion as the, the sort of king of, of beasts, right? The one associated with power and strength and authority. The lion from the tribe of Judah would hold a scepter and he would reign over the nations. So whoever this one is, this worthy one that's emerged, he is the one spoken of, the one promised in Genesis 49, a lion from the tribe of Judah who would rule over the nations. And Revelation 5, 5 makes it pretty clear to us who this is. He also calls him the root of David. Another Old Testament allusion, the root of David. From Isaiah chapter 11, uh, 1 through 10, Isaiah 11 begins with the prophecy that there would come from the, the stump of Jesse a branch. And the branch is seen as that prophecy unfolds as one who would uh, indeed have uh, the rule uh, over the nation. And so it's interesting there that in Isaiah 11, the, the, the foretold one is seen as the, a branch coming from the stump of Jesse. That is David's father. So there it sees David as the tree and the, the Messiah, the promised one, as the branch coming from it. Here, the elder says that it is, he is the root of David, which is the opposite. This is the source of David. And if you were to flip to the back of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16... It says there, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So this lion of the tribe of Judah is both the, the root of David, that is the source of David, and the descendant of David. Both of those things are true of him. And it can only be true of him because he is eternal. He is the eternal son of God. And so he was David's source and he is David's descendant as a man. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And in the conquering of this lion, he has been given the ability to open the scroll. That is to, to unfold and enact God's purposes for the world and for his people. The introduction of Christ into the context of John's despair and this failed search highlights the uniqueness and the centrality of Jesus Christ in God's unfolding purposes for time and eternity. Christ alone is able to enact these plans and purposes Christ is the hinge upon which the door opens onto God's redemptive purposes for his people. And so he's been announced, behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and he can open the scroll. And so John turns to look in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb. That's not what you expect. You expect he'll see a lion. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. There is intentional surprise here. This is the, a narrative uh, surprise. It's unexpected. We expect a lion and instead we get a lamb, which really could scarcely be more different from one another. Right? The lion is powerful. The lion is a hunter and a warrior. The lion has authority. The lion is fierce and intimidating. A lamb, not even a sheep, mind you. Like a sheep is not all that threatening. This is a baby one of those. This is a, a baby sheep who is helpless, who's weak, who's small, unimposing. And this is how the lion of the tribe of Judah appears to John in verse 6. He appears as a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. We see that he has seven horns. Horns are a sign of strength, a sign of, of military power. So to say that he has seven horns, again with the number seven throughout Revelation, bearing the, the signal of, of completeness, of wholeness. This is to say that this lion of the tribe of Judah, this lamb who was standing as though slain, has all power. He has seven horns, meaning he has all authority. And he has seven eyes. And he tells us very plainly which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We've seen the seven spirits of God a couple of times already, referring to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead. And again, the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits representing the fullness, the completeness of God's being and God's spirit. And there where it says that his uh, spirits have been sent out into the world, it's showing us that the presence of Jesus by the spirit of God has now gone out into all the world and among all his people. And so there's a comprehensiveness to the presence of God with his people that's envisioned by this lamb with seven eyes. And of course, we're expected to see an all-knowing omniscience there, all-seeing omniscience. Jesus, this lamb with seven eyes, knows and sees all, which we've seen clearly in the seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. He began each of those letters by saying, I know your works, I know where you dwell, right? He knows because he sees, because he's there. He's with his people by the Spirit. And the fact that he's dubbed the Lamb of God is important, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. And so the Lamb emerges, and he goes to the throne. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And if the scroll contains the edicts of God, the decrees of God for human history, and it's in his right hand, the hand of authority and power, 
And if this lion, this promised ruler, comes to the throne and takes the scroll, then what is happening in the taking of the scroll is nothing less than the coronation of Jesus Christ as king over all creation. So I believe we actually have probably a reference to his ascension. So we're actually kind of looking back in history from where we stand today. I think we're looking back to where Christ had risen from the dead. He spent 40 days among his followers, and then he was taken up into heaven. That's his ascension. And when he was taken up into heaven, this, at least symbolically portrayed, is what happened. Jesus was enthroned as king. Jesus took his place at the right hand of God the Father on the throne to rule over the world. Reminded of the vision in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, and one like a son of man comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom that is eternal, a dominion that never ends. And this is the very same reality. It's the Son of Man, it's, it's the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, coming to the throne to receive the scroll and crowned as king. So the first all-important reality that we see in this scene is Christ's coronation as king. Why is Jesus the one with this role? Why is he the one that's been given the authority to rule over the world? On what basis does he have this authority to exercise the, the, this universal rule, to break open the scroll? And that leads us to the second reality that we see in these verses, and it's this, Christ's conquering by the cross. Christ's conquering by the cross. You see, Jesus gained the right to rule as God's regent over the universe by his death and resurrection. In verse 5, once more, as the elder drew John's attention, he said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in the seven seals. In other words, he is now able, he is now worthy to open the scrolls because he has conquered. So, so his ability to open the scroll has to do with, with the fact that he has conquered by virtue of his conquering. Well, what does that mean? How did he conquer? Look at verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw... A lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the fact that this lamb has been slain is a clear reference to Jesus' crucifixion. He was portrayed uh, as the lamb of God elsewhere in the New Testament. John the Baptist, when, he first, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, the Baptist said to him, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It points us back to the realities of Passover during the days of the Exodus where God gave uh, this, this provision for the people of Israel to save their children if they would slay a lamb and put its blood upon their doorpost. And so Jesus would become the, the Passover lamb, the one whose blood would save us from judgment. Lamb would be a regular uh, evening and morning sacrifice among the people of God under the Mosaic Covenant uh, for the atonement of sins. And so again, Christ is portrayed as the sacrifice for sins, as the one whose blood covers over guilt and makes 
atonement. And so to say that he is standing as a lamb who has been slain is to say this is the one who died for the sins of his people. But it doesn't say, I saw a lamb lying there on the ground which had been slain. It says, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. And that is a reference to his resurrection. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus was crucified. He was sacrificed for sin, but he conquered the grave and emerged victorious as the living one. So the lamb standing as though it had been slain is a reference to his crucifixion and to his resurrection. He is now standing. He is a living one. And the song that we, that we read of, of the, the elders and the living creatures in verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and language of the earth and made them a kingdom of priests to our God. Right? In other words, his worthiness to open the scroll comes by virtue of his having been slain and thereby purchased the people for God from every nation of the earth. It was his atoning death that sort of gained him this role of, or, 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 or enabled him to conquer. He conquered through his death. <clears throat> Indeed, his conquering and his dying are one and the same. He conquered the enemies of God and his people by suffering and dying in their place. Not by military conquest, not by riding in on a horse with a sword to drive out the uh, political powers. He conquered by giving his life. Remember, among his final words from the cross was the statement, it is finished. And that wasn't a statement of merely Finally, it's over now. I've made it. It certainly wasn't a statement of defeat, like I am finished. It was a statement of triumph. The work is accomplished. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. His death was his victory. And Christ's sacrificial death as a conquering act is a theme throughout Revelation. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, which I read for us at the start of our service, it says of Jesus that he was the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. How did he free us? Not by fighting against the enemies of God's people with a sword, but by his blood, by his death. Chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says of himself, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? I have the authority over death and hell because I died and I'm alive again forever. It's his death and his resurrection that secures the authority that he has. We see, of course, in this very scene in chapter 5, the, the lion who has conquered by being slain. And in chapter 12 of Revelation, verses 1 through 11, we see a scene uh, that where uh, it is said in verse 11 that the, the saints of God, the people of God, conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did they conquer? By the death of their Messiah. It was the blood of Christ that allows God's people to conquer even amid persecution and trial and hardship in this 
world. So it, it, it is throughout Revelation that Christ's death is seen not as his defeat, but as his victory, as his conquering act. And that's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Just to cite one potent example, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, after we've seen the, the great humbling of Christ as he emptied himself of his glory and took on the form of a servant and then went all the way down to death and death on a cross. Verse 9 of Philippians 2 says this, Therefore, therefore, on the basis of his humbling and his death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Does that phrase sound familiar? We just read that in Revelation 5. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was his humbling in death and his self-sacrifice that gained him the exaltation to the throne that gained him the authority to rule and to reign over the nations. His death is his victory. He conquered by the cross. Christ's death and resurrection are alone the source of our life. If you hope to have purpose and hope in this life, and joy and peace in the life to come, trust in Jesus Alone. It's the only way. His death paid the price for sins, and his resurrection secured the future resurrection of all who place their faith in him as Savior. Christ conquering by the cross. The third and final reality we see in this chapter is this we, we, we're going to see the response of heaven and earth to the conquering of God's enemies, and namely, Christ's acclaim throughout creation. Christ's acclaim throughout creation. That is the honor, the praise, the glory that he receives from all of creation. Christ's acclaim throughout creation. Indeed, the back half of this chapter is taken up with songs of worship and praise and acts of humble bowing and worship and ascribing worth to the Lamb of God. We see this very a vivid image of the throne room and all of heaven and indeed all of creation caught up in worshiping the Lamb. Now, so chapters 4 and 5 together envision sort of concentric circles around the throne of God. And so chapter 4, verse 2 began, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on it. And so the throne of God is right in the middle. And then he says uh, there are 24 elders in their thrones around that. And then actually it said around the throne were four living creatures. So really the circles go like this. The throne, the four living creatures representing, I think, angels around the throne of God. And then around that, these 24 thrones of the elders representing, I believe, the redeemed people of God. The, the 12 tribes of Israel plus 12 apostles equals 24 being the, the completed redeemed people of God. And then we find the lamb standing as though slain. And then around those elders in, in verse 11, we find myriads of angels. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands are around the living creatures and the elders. So that's another wider concentric circle uh, containing all the angels in uh, heaven. 
And then finally, in verse 13, it encompasses everything, right? He says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying. And so this final wider circle is every living thing that is and was and will be, right? All living things. And so it just gets wider and wider and bigger and bigger. Now, chapter 5 gives us three songs of praise to the Lamb. Three distinct songs of praise, each one sung by a different group moving outward from the throne. So the first song we see is in verses 8 through 10, sung by the living creatures and the elders. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The quick mention of harps here. Uh, this would have been a well-known in- instrument of celebration. It's, harp is listed among the instruments of, of praise. <clears throat> praise and joy in the Psalms and various other places. Harps and lyres and tambourines, right? So this is to say that the music that they are playing is joyful and exuberant and celebratory. And they're holding bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, which is a very precious picture of the fact that the prayers of God's people on earth are close to his throne. He hears. Indeed, the fact that they are pictured as incense means that they are pleasing to him, right? In in Old Testament worship, in the temple, in the tabernacle, incense was to be burning at all times to arise as a pleasing aroma to God. And so to say that the prayers of the saints are incense before his throne is to say God is pleased by the prayers of his people. And God hears and takes delight in the prayers of his people. What hope that gives us. What purpose it gives us in prayer to know our prayers are carried to his throne. Our, cares, our prayers make it to him. They don't hit the ceiling and bounce back. They make it all the way to the throne of God. And they please him. To know that we can please the heart of God by praying is a remarkable reality. And so then they begin to sing. They fall down. They bring the incense of the prayers of the saints and they begin to sing and look at what they sing. The theme of their song is what Christ accomplished in his death. Right? That's what they're singing about. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. You paid the ransom for your people. Your people were enslaved. Your people were indebted to sin and death and you purchased them back by your death. Just as Jesus said he would do in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28. He says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when he died, when he gave his life, he paid the ransom for his people to purchase them back from the dead. And in doing that, he has formed a multi-ethnic, multicolored people of God, right? You see that clearly. A people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There is no political or social or ethnic or racial boundary among the people of God. They're from every tribe and people and language and nation of the earth. And they've been formed into this one family of God by the death of the Lord Jesus. And he's made them, this one people, into a kingdom and priests to our God. These are the roles that Israel was to play. This kingdom of God where he would rule over them by his 
word with his appointed king, and where they would serve as priests to him in in offering worship to him and, and bringing others into relationship to God. Israel, as we know, failed in that role. So we read through the Old Testament, you see over and over again, they, they don't, they're not up to it. They can't live up to it. Frankly, we don't live up to it either. But Christ now, by his death, has made his people a kingdom and priests. Christ has accomplished this. He's turned us into this. He's made us something we weren't before. Once you were not a people, now you are my people. So the song of the the living creatures and the elders is all about what Christ accomplished in his death. The second song from a wider audience, right? It says, I looked and I heard around the throne, living, uh, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. Now it's interesting, he says he looked and he hears. So we don't necessarily see the angels, but he hears this loud cacophony of angelic voices numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is Huge numbers that cannot possibly be counted and known. Uh, an, an innumerable choir of angels chimes in now with their song. And their song ascribes worth to the Lamb and particularly sevenfold worth. I don't know if you noticed the number as, you were, as we were reading that earlier, but look at this. Worthy is the Lamb, this is verse 12, who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Is that an accident? I don't think so. Seven is fullness, it's wholeness, it's completeness. The Lamb of God is worthy of all honor, all power, all wisdom, all blessing. The angels are celebrating and ascribing the sevenfold worth to the Lamb of God. Again, the Lamb who was slain. They have in their minds the death of the Lamb. And then the third song, it just could not be any bigger, any more comprehensive. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Any place where there's a being, I heard it. I heard them singing. And here's their song. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now that song encompasses the scene both in chapter 4 and chapter 5 because we see now mentioned the Father. The one who is seated on the throne in chapter 4 is God the Father. And the Lamb has now joined him there, having taken the scroll, having been crowned as king. And so now the honor that they ascribe is to God and to the Lamb. Blessing, honor, glory, and might. The living creatures declare their agreement. Amen. And the elders bow down before the throne in worship. The worship of the Lamb begins with the innermost circle. And it expands outward until every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth is involved exuberantly ascribing worth and glory to God and to the Lamb. And I, implicitly to the Holy Spirit as the, the Lamb has these seven eyes representing the Spirit. 
for their work in both creation and redemption. So I think if you take chapters 4 and 5 together, you see, because the, the song of the angels to God, the Father, at the end of chapter 4, verse 11, was worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. I think the particular glory in view in chapter 4 is God's work in creation. And the particular glory in view in chapter 5 is the Lamb's work of redemption. So chapters 4 and 5 show us the throne room of heaven. And it is filled with worship to God for his work in creation and redemption. This is your world. We broke it. You saved it. This is the song of heaven. A couple of applications here. First of all, I think we see the importance of cross-centered worship. Cross-centered worship. And I'm thinking specifically of, of the church's gathering, the church's gathered worship. When Christians come together to worship and praise God, the cross must be at the center of what we do, of what we say, of what we pray, of what we read, of how we think, of, of our affections. The cross should be at the center of what we do when the church gathers we cannot graduate from the cross. Some people speak about the, the cross or the gospel as though that's just sort of the ABCs of Christianity. Once you, once you kind of get Jesus died for my sins and I can be saved, okay, great. Now let's go start talking about the deep things of God. Heaven disagrees. The deep things of God are the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins and purchased us for God. The cross is the center of worship in heaven and it ought to be the center of our worship here. Bob Coughlin always says, there's never more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. Just keep mining its depths and considering it afresh. In the church I served at in Houston, there was a, a, an attender. I don't, think it, I don't think the person stayed at the church very long. But uh, in one of the, they would, we had prayer requests, like bulletins where people could uh, write prayer requests in and drop them in the offering plate. And now and then, the prayer request would be some critique about the church or whatever. Uh, not quite what that's intended for. But one of these uh, sort of anonymous prayer requests I got was, why are the songs so bloody? Like, why are we singing so much about blood? Like, it's just uncomfortable. And I wish I'd known who had written it, and I had the opportunity to sit down with them, because I would have loved to point them to Revelation 5 and say, listen, our songs are bloody because the blood of Jesus Christ is the only hope we've got. The blood of Jesus Christ is what gives us life. His death in our place secured our eternity with him as his people. So if you're not comfortable with songs about blood, you're not going to be very comfortable in heaven either because they're still singing about it. You know, I find that churches are so often entangled with fashioning uh, worship services uh, around the culture of the world, perhaps in the name of trying to stay relevant or whatever. We want, to be, want people to feel comfortable when they come in here. Uh, and so songs sound just like the world's songs and bands sound just like the world's bands and the liturgy as, as it is is like pretty much just like you might expect at a concert. So churches spend so much effort trying to sort of fashion our worship after the culture of the world. Perhaps we should let our worship gatherings be shaped instead by the culture of heaven. Maybe we should look at what's going on in heaven and go, hey, why don't we spend some time doing what they're doing? And let's focus on that in our worship services. So cross-centered worship. And the second application I'd say is this. Uh, it's, it's the necessity of cross-centered living. So for each of us, 
individually as, as followers of Jesus. We should live, we are called to live cross-centered lives. Now think about this. The, the Lamb's appearance in heaven is as though slain, right? So his, his crucifixion is still evident. It was obvious to John as he saw the, the Lamb standing in the presence uh, of the throne. His resurrected body still contained the wounds of crucifixion. We saw that uh, at, at the end of the Gospels where he appeared to to Thomas' disciples and said, here's the nail wounds and the hole in my side. So even the resurrected, glorified body of Christ still had the marks of his crucifixion. The sacrificial death of Christ is the central theme of heaven's worship, as we've already seen. And we are told repeatedly throughout the New Testament that Christian faithfulness will entail our own crucifixion, as it were. Perhaps not literally, but Christ calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. The call to follow Jesus is the call to be crucified. It is a cross-centered pathway. And we need to embrace the reality that our pathway to glory in Christ's eternal kingdom is not a pathway of blissful ease, but one of hardship and suffering. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the shame and the agony of the cross because he saw the joy and the exaltation that existed on the other side of it, right? He had the joy of heaven in his view, and that carried him through the, the suffering and the shame of the cross. And in the same way, as Revelation 12, 11 tells us, God's people will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, it says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. We are called to give our lives. Maybe or maybe not literally as martyrs of the faith. That may be. And that is the cup that many Jesus followers around the world today and in the past have been called to drink. I cannot, I cannot say whether or not that's the cup that he has called any of us to drink. But I do know that he calls us all to deny ourselves. He calls us all to walk the road of suffering and humility that he walked. Yeah. The pathway of, our pathway to glory is one that goes through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 tells us. In order to follow Christ in this world, we must be ready to travel the same path that he walked. Trusting always in his promise. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Which kingdom are you living for? And if you're going to live for the kingdom of Christ, and if you're going to live with the hope of eternity in your mind, you're going to have to live a cross-shaped life. Laying down your rights and your freedoms and your wellness even for the sake of others. Well, I'll conclude by, uh, by reading for you a, a text of a hymn that we sometimes sing. In fact, we sang it on Easter Sunday. And I think that this scene is in view uh, of the author who, who wrote this hymn. Here, here, here's the stanza and then we'll close. Crown him with many crowns. The Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of Him who died for thee. And hail Him as thy matchless King through all eternity.
Let's pray together.